Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Tuesday, November 15th, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen. I am very lucky this week because this is my second week now that I've actually had somebody in the studio with me, which, in my opinion, is just a much more enjoyable experience. I had Dan last week, and now for crossover theme week on Industry Focus, I have Christine Hargis from Healthcare, and she's going to be talking to us today about some of the trends that we've seen in consumer retail and how they have been able to parallel themselves, I guess, in terms of healthcare and pharmacy. I'm excited to be here, Vince. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we came into this uh, into this theme week, I guess, trying to figure out some of the different combinations that we could have with the sectors. You know, previously um, we had done something uh, on the consumer side with uh, financials with um, Industrials talking about um, driverless cars, talking about, for example, bank cards or branded credit cards at stores, for example. But I thought it would be a little hard actually to find uh, things that would pair up well in terms of consumer and healthcare, just because your site can be very technical, and um, I'm personally not as familiar with that space. But when you know you shared some of your notes with me, and we talked about it more. I actually realized, like, holy cow, there's a ton of stuff that is the same. Actually, there's a lot. Absolutely. So, um, you know, jumping right into it, one of the first things uh, was in terms of increased personalization, and I think on the healthcare drug side, you guys really take that to a very, to another level, in my opinion. So, we had a previous show where I spoke with Asset about, for example, on Nike uh, with Nike ID, you can kind of take a base shoe, design it with the colors that you want, uh, put your own uh, essentially decals on the heels, and with Starbucks, you can really make your drink exactly what you want, but. In terms of the healthcare world, how are they viewing personalization and how has that kind of changed their industry? So, this is a huge trend, both as you mentioned in the consumer goods sector and then healthcare as well. People are pushing for more and more individualized treatments and more effective drugs. And one of the ways in which you can do that is to make them tailored to your body's chemical. Composition. Composition. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> um, so uh, you get these companies like Illumina that are uh, profiling people's genes, and they can tell every little nuance of how your your genetic makeup works. And with that, you can see if somebody is predisposed to a certain type of disease, and maybe there are preventative steps that they can take. On the healthcare show, we've previously covered Illumina, which is your go-to stock if you want to have exposure to this this gene. Uh, profiling market. But there are also so many drug makers that can play in here. For example, uh, we uh, have talked about Roche every once in a while on the healthcare show. They have a drug called Cadsila. And this is a drug that treats HER2 positive breast cancer. And what that means is that your cells have been shown to overexpress the HERT2 HER2 gene, which that's about a quarter of all breast cancers. And so, how this drug works is it's a combination drug. It's got a chemotherapy in there and it's got Herceptin in there. And so, that second one, Herceptin, attaches to the HER2 protein on the cell and it prevents it from receiving growth signals. Meanwhile, this drug also carries a chemotherapy in it, but it delivers it in this very targeted way because Herceptin knows to go after just these HER2 positive cells and then drop the chemotherapy. So, it's not as toxic to healthy cells. And so, this is only approved for a small uh, segment of patients with breast cancer. And that, of course, is something that you see across personalized medicine, is that it's not ubiquitous. You can't just give it to every single patient anymore. But that's a good thing. It means that it's even more effective. So, obviously, you know, with 
some of the therapies, the drugs that you uh, just mentioned, especially in the healthcare space, obviously life changing can save, um, can help heal and treat a lot of people. Very important. But you know, kind of taking it to on the consumer side, maybe not quite as impactful, obviously. But something I noticed that I think is very similar to that in a sense is, you know, with if you think about a company like Under Armour, and they are very, they've taken uh, their footwear, for example, and given it a focus very much of trying to innovate and improve the performance that it can give each person. And so there might not be currently at the level where they can personalize it to every single person, talking about millions of pairs of shoes. But the potential is there in that market. If you go to a specialty running store, for example, they will put you on the treadmill, have a camera to kind of look at uh, exactly what your step is like and to figure out the right shoe for you. I think it kind of plays into we're all a little bit narcissistic. People are starting to expect like hey, I'm a unique individual snowflake and I want the shoe that is best for me. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're kind of uh, experimenting right now with things like 3D printing potentially to open up that possibility on a more mass scale. So, um, you know, going beyond personalization as one of the big trends, uh, it's just, uh, something else that I wanted to talk about too is obviously marketing and uh, be it with traditional media like radio, television or also digital media, social media, but you know, retail and consu- uh, packaged consumer products, some of the big, big brands, excuse me, that I think everybody is f- familiar with. You know, they spend a ton of money on marketing, but at the same time, some of the uh, big drunk companies are absolutely not. You know, they are following suit very much. So, um, I found that in terms of ad spending, uh, in a report from Stat News, pharmaceutical industry spent about over five billion dollars in 2015. That's up about 60 percent in the past four years, and that is only on traditional media like television and print, which is probably uh, losing. Its share in terms of overall ad spending, because digital ad spending is growing so much in popularity. What is your, what are your thoughts on that? It is incredible to me that we're still doing this. This is not something that you see in pretty much any other country in the world. New Zealand is the only country that comes to mind as a major established country that you can have drug makers directly advertising to consumers. And there's a pretty strong lobby against it. The American Medical Association has called for a ban on these DTC direct-to-consumer ads in November 2015. There's been legislation introduced. There are a lot of lawmakers that don't think that you should be able to do this. And I mean, if you think about it, I, I can sympathize with that argument. I mean, you, on the one hand, it's good for patients to know about these chronic conditions that they might have and not even realize it. It's good that it encourages people to go see doctors and to ask questions and know their treatment options. But on the other hand, you have doctors reporting that patients come in and they're like, I saw this specific drug on TV and that's the one that I want. And that might not be the best drug for them. Mm-hmm. And if you're the doctor in that situation, your hands are kind of tied because the patient can easily just leave and go to another doctor. And you don't want to do that. Meanwhile, you could also have patients demanding the brand name when there might be a generic, which is literally the same exact chemical compound, but yet they're they're demanding that they want this specific one because of an advertisement. Okay, so we will get uh, we'll talk more about the branding and how important that is, especially with examples like you just mentioned. But um, I think I was I've always been surprised as well what you mentioned the fact that you know you don't see prescription drug commercials uh, especially because TV right now is still the biggest format that they advertise on you don't see that in other places you mentioned New Zealand and I think the United States those might be the only two uh, major markets where that happens but uh, looking in terms of the incentives I guess so to speak it makes a lot of sense I think for 
the uh, for the big drunk companies to do this, in the fact that the uh, I have a list here of the 20 most advertised prescription drugs in 2015 in terms of by spending. And again, this is only with traditional media. It doesn't even get into the uh, digital side. Right, because of, of course that's harder to track and report on. Exactly. So Humira, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, they spent over 350 million dollars, but you know, from what I could find, and correct me if I get any of this incorrect, by the way. Uh, first nine months of 2016, so those first three quarters, you know, revenue for Humera was $7.6 billion. That is enormous. Yeah, and so they have right. plenty of incentive to do this. And at the same time, I, you know, I've seen, doing in my research, I've seen some arguments that people say being able to see one of these commercials, people might become aware with the symptoms they describe of a condition that they didn't realize that they had. So it's not just a black and white issue necessarily. There's absolutely some gray space. One of the other interesting nuances is just how much information does the drug maker need to disclose in these ads? And this especially becomes an issue when you consider how social media has become a bigger presence in ad budgets, as you mentioned. If you only have 140 characters in a tweet, you can't possibly say every single little thing that the FDA wants you to. And I don't know if you've seen magazines that have drug uh, advertisements in them, but it'll be one page of the ad, and then you flip it over, and there's like two pages of all the prescribing yep. information. Yeah, I have seen that. So then, if you have a tweet, how are you supposed to do that? Is it sufficient to just have a link, you know, full prescribing information here? Or what? It's well, another gray area. The question becomes how often do people really click? On those follow-up links like that, because and then otherwise, all you end up seeing is that marketing message. And with something like your prescription drugs, it can be very important that you get that full picture. Uh, one other uh, related item I wanted to bring up here in terms of this marketing was uh, something else I mentioned that people, I guess, uh, are taking up arms about in terms of uh, these uh, prescription drugs and what their marketing looks like is they often use. Uh, Animated characters in cartoons, and so you know the the thing that I think about that hasn't that was uh, cracked down on the '90s is with Big Tobacco, and they had uh, famous characters like Joe Camel, the Marlboro Man, uh, and they would have them dressed in like leather jackets, T-shirts, looking cool. And a lot of people argue that this was targeting tobacco towards children, and so eventually in the '90s, I think it was President Clinton, he signed a bill kind of banning such. The usage of these characters. So, do you feel at all, just in your opinion, really, like that using some of these animated, funny-looking characters uh, for sometimes it might be for, uh, I guess, a condition or uh, something that's not as serious, but overall kind of minimizes maybe the risk with certain drugs, even though they have a lot of side effects, for example. So, my hunch here would be that the use of cartoon characters would be more prominent in drugs that are with conditions that have a visible effect on a person. Yeah. Because you don't want to depict somebody that's really, really sick maybe getting a little bit better, exactly. which is unfortunately the case with a lot of these drugs. You know, a, a tiny little marginal improvement is enough to get approval, because that is better than nothing. But if you're then to advertise that drug, depicting the reality of it is not exactly an uplifting picture. Yeah. So, uh, moving on here, just because we have quite a few other uh, of these trends and topics that I wanted to touch on, uh, we had talked about branding a little bit, so I wanted to, to dive into that a little bit more. And I think, in terms of you know my world, consumer and retail, people understand how powerful branding can be. You think about a company like Coca-Cola, you think about a chain like Walmart or Amazon, uh, they have obviously built out their models 
in very much in a way to try and draw you in to be a repeat customer. Plenty of studies indicate, you know, a report from Bain, Bain and Company says that just a 5% increase in retention rate can potentially boost your profits by 25% to 95%. Pretty powerful stuff. But at the same time, you know, I noticed, and, you know, we had talked about before the show is that some of the branding in terms in this space is not so much for the companies like a Coca-Cola overall, but for their specific products. And how does that kind of play into the dynamic when uh, somebody goes in for treatment? So, I would argue that the power of branding in healthcare might even be stronger than it is in consumer goods. Yeah. Actually, so I was going to say not as much on a margin standpoint, but actually, yes, and here's why. So, there are so many drugs out there that have these very devoted patients, particularly for chronic conditions. If you've been taking this forever and ever and ever, and all of a sudden its patent wears off, and so a generic version comes out, a lot of patients will actually choose to stick with the branded version mm-hmm. because maybe they don't understand that a generic is literally the same chemical compound, it's identical. Who knows what it is? You know, maybe it's just laziness that you know, if I've been taking X drug, like that, well, that's what works for me. And medicine is not something you want to mess around with. You know, it's not like, oh, well, I usually wear New Balance running shoes, and let me try out the new Nike model. Eh, I don't like it. I'll go back. It's very different when you're talking about putting a chemical into your body. Um, I think one interesting trend that I have to bring up talking about generics is the concept of biosimilars, which we have talked about previously on the healthcare show. Um, They're essentially generic versions of more complex drugs that can't necessarily just be chemically synthesized into an exact duplicate. And so, because of that, they're called biosimilars for a reason. They're similar. Mm -hmm. And they are effectively the same thing. But not exactly, and because they're also very complex to make, they're not as cheap. You know, generic drugs are maybe ten percent the cost of the brand name, but biosimilars not so much. You know, you're looking at maybe forty percent off, sixty percent off, and so I don't think that you're going to see as many people. And this is a very new thing in in the healthcare market is sure. the prominence of biosimilars. My guess is that you won't see nearly as many people leaving their their brand name drug that they know and love for a biosimilar. Yeah, I think. That when it comes to you know whatever medicine you might be taking, it's such an I feel like it's just a particularly innately personal thing, and like you mentioned, for somebody with um, some type who needs some type of chronic uh, treatment for a chronic illness, if you've been taking it for so long and it's something that's had a very prominent visible effect in improving your life and making you feel better, I can totally understand more than you know what shoe you're wearing. What you're drinking, what you're eating, it's that is going to be something that can be incredibly, incredibly difficult to break from. And I, you know, I think that even if you look at over-the-counter medicine and the fact that uh, you know you see Tylenol, for example, and it's um, off-brand replica or whatever you want to call that, it's copy. Pretty substantial price difference, but still, you know, a lot of cases, I know, I feel like. People will still reach for that brand name just because of the the comfort that they get from it. The fact that they know or they feel like, oh, that's going to be the quality I'm expecting, even though it might be exactly the same. And they advertise that on the box. Check the ingredients label, essentially, of the Tylenol or whatever the brand right, name is. Right. The store is. brand will say, compare to fill in the exactly. blank. And you look at the back of the boxes, and it's, it is the same thing. It has to be. Mm-hmm. All right. So, okay. Here's something that uh, Asa and I also spoke recently about in terms of super trends in the consumer and retail space. So this time we're uh, just I want to touch briefly on loyalty programs. So I think on the consumer retail side, everybody can look in their wallet, 
you know, honestly look at their keys and see a lot of different things in terms of their credit cards, maybe their airfare, uh, supermarket, plenty of options. How is that playing out in terms of the healthcare space? So, for that, I would really point to the retail pharmacy space. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, you have these stores that are essentially the same. You know, your your CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid. For me, and I think for a lot of other people, proximity is what determines which one of them you're going to use to fill your prescriptions or to walk in and buy Tylenol or whatever it is that you're looking for. But there are little things that these companies can do to try to keep their customers loyal. Um, the best example of this that I can think of is Rite Aid with their Plenty program. And this is something that you may have discussed previously. It's a, a group effort amongst a bunch of big name companies. It's Exxon, AT&T, Macy's, Hulu. Yeah, there's a there's ton a of retail partners of in this. So they all got together and they made this co-opt loyalty program so that you can share your loyalty points throughout all of them. And whether that's going to be enough to make people encouraged to go to a Rite Aid as opposed to the CVS that might be a little bit closer, I'm not sure. I mean, particularly when you consider that these stores are often right next to each other, or at least in the same strip mall. Sure, it might be enough. Mm -hmm. So, uh, on top of the Rite Aid. The Plenty program, which I think is particularly attractive because of what you mentioned, its network of retail partners. Um, I was looking at uh, CVS; they have their extra care rewards. Uh, Walgreens has its balance rewards. I'm uh, maybe um, I'm kind of curious, essentially, like in terms of the retail pharmacy business, how much does it play in? Because I feel like when I go to each of these stores, they're all very, very similar. So if it's not proximity, really, how much does essentially your product selection in terms of you know magazines, candy, or other products beyond your prescription counter really have a draw if it's not just proximity? I think it's so easy for these companies to offer the same stuff, the stuff that mm-hmm. works the best. One thing that I will point out here, though, is CVS having gotten rid of cigarettes. That was a huge move for them. Uh, yes, I remember and that. And this was a while ago, but that... I could see that having both a positive and a negative impact on consumers. I and mean, I can see people saying, man, that's a great brand if you're a non-smoker and you, you support healthy things like that. Sure. But if you're a smoker, then you're not going to go to the CVS because you can't pick up a pack of cigarettes on the way out. But realistically, and this is another thing that we have touched on in the healthcare show previously, that move for CVS was a branding move, but it was more for their PBM side of the business, which is their pharmacy benefits management, which essentially negotiates drug prices. And so for that, it mattered a lot more that they had this brand image of, yeah, we are uh, cigarette free. Sure. And I, if I recall correctly, I think they had estimated that would have something like maybe a $2 billion impact on their sales. And for a company the size of CVS, with their top line is, Multiples and multiples of that, so it should have been minimized. You might argue that there may have been like an effect in that people who previously would have bought cigarettes and other products, uh, yeah, they lose out on some of that revenue. But like you mentioned, uh, it seems like that wasn't really their main concern. And but I think that was factored PBM into side. the estimate, right? And the PBM is the majority of their revenue, so exactly. if it helps them a little bit there and dings them more on the the retail pharmacy side, that's okay. That probably nuts out. All right. So, uh, last two, uh, trying to work through these relatively quickly. Uh, this is something that's been very, very prominent recently in headlines, and that's with price transparency. On the retail side, you don't see this quite as much. A really good example that I could think of was T-Mobile. Uh, so, T-Mobile uh, and its CEO, uh, John Legere, he has his in uncarrier initiatives, and so basically these have been kind of breaking, uh, I guess, 
industry standards in terms of billing uh, practices, in terms of what your data is, how how those things work out, and so these uncaring issues are designed to be very friendly to the consumer and to make honestly put some egg on the face of the competing uh, net, uh, wireless service providers like Verizon and AT&T by saying, like, hey, they have these really shady billing practices, or they're charging you for overages, we're going to stop doing that. Um, and that, and then on the cables, even on your cable bill as well, I think, uh, in some cases, you have Comcast has gotten flack, for example, like adding fees below the line so that they can basically market, hey, your monthly service will be $50, but in actuality, there's 15 other dollars of fees and they're just kind of reclassifying it. So there are some moves on the retail side, I think, with price transparency, but on the uh, in the healthcare side, it's really something that we're seeing in the headlines quite a bit in terms of like the EpiPen and then some other controversies. What's going on there? So those were some really, really good examples. When we first brought this up as a topic, the way that I saw this going was that we would talk about how McDonald's, you walk in and there's a menu <laughs> and there's prices and you know how much things are going to be. And then I was going to paint this stark contrasting picture of healthcare where everything is so murky and you can't really see what anything's going to cost mm-hmm. until you get the bill. But yeah, those the examples that you described have a lot of symmetries. Um, for example, so there is this big issue in healthcare coverage where you might not know exactly how much you're going to be charged for some sort of procedure. So say you go to a clinic and you know that the clinic is in network, but you don't know that every single doctor that might see you within that clinic or maybe just one person involved in your surgery is not actually in network and you get slammed with this big bill and okay. it's a surprise it's always a surprise yeah absolutely so california in september passed this law called AB072 and that's supposed to protect people from this by limiting the patient's financial obligation to what they would have paid if the provider had been in network and so you start to see these little incremental steps because people are demanding it they can no longer accept that when you go to a hospital you don't get that menu like you get at McDonald's of here's what everything is going to cost mm-hmm. and, and the right to refuse. No, I don't want that extra $42 Band-Aid. You just get the bill at the end. And so we, d- we do have a shift going on within the industry where people expect to know what they're going to pay beforehand. Yeah, I th- I honestly could see that as a huge point of differentiation for certain service provi- providers potentially in the healthcare space, where you have you can go to one hospital that is much more uh, open and transparent about what you're paying for and everything, and then on the other side, it, it, a bit murkier. And I can see people obviously uh, valuing that transparency and it's kind a, of turning there. It's a competitive advantage. It's it's a competitive advantage for hospitals who you see them starting to post reviews online, you know, open and honest feedback. Uh, it's a differentiator for insurers, for example. If you have an app that's really easy to use, mm, absolutely, people can see what they're going to pay and they value that. All right, so last one, uh, and this one uh, is something that's honestly pretty uh, new and that's also developing in the consumer space, and that's with subscription business models. We've seen the success with some of those. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dollar Shave Club, mm-hmm. but they recently were acquired by Unilever, a uh, really big company in the consumer retail space for about a billion dollars. Uh, in my opinion, uh, very much a proof of concept of how lucrative this can be. And then some other uh, big ones I think people are familiar with think Birchbox, Blue Apron. And yeah, I think the main idea on the consumer retail side is that you can really very quickly build loyalty with with customers because you know they've signed up to get something every month, every two weeks, whatever it may be, and they can sample a lot of new products without kind of being overwhelmed with the very many choices out there now. Uh, how is that playing in on the healthcare side? 
So you wouldn't think that there's an obvious connection here, but I'm going to draw the parallel between a subscription business model on the CG side of things mm -hmm. with chronic disease treatment in healthcare. Sure. So it is very lucrative for these consumer goods companies to have customers that are signed up and that are basically signed up for life. You know, if you sign up for Spotify and all of a sudden that's where all of your playlists are and your friends are on there, you're not leaving. You're going to keep paying that 9.99 or however Absolutely. much it is pretty much indefinitely. And you can kind of see a, a parallel business model with chronic treatment. If you are taking a drug for the rest of your life as a treatment rather than a cure, that money comes in day in and day out. And I think that actually is a fairly nefarious part of the healthcare business model. But I will point out that it's one saving grace is that if a disease could be treated, you know, some people will criticize healthcare companies saying that they're making these treatments because they want you to have to take the drug for the rest of your life. So instead could, of making it a cure, exactly, they yeah. could make a cure and it would be one and done. That's not the case. Well, no. If that was possible, that you could make something that would cure it, somebody's going to do that because as soon as you make a cure, you have stolen all of that market. Sure. All right. Well, uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, but if anyone has any more questions, be it on the consumer side or on the healthcare side, you can obviously reach out to us and the rest of the IF crew. Uh, via Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can send us any questions or comments by email to industryfocus at fool.com. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks very much, Christine, for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Vince. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Fool on.